Now please turn with me in your Bibles to the prophecy of Joel, chapter 2. We're going to consider this evening the gospel according to Joel, as I'm calling it. And our text is Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless his word to us tonight. <clears throat> Father, we pray you'd give us ears to hear. We pray for the ministry of your spirit among us, that your word would go forth, not in word only, but also with power. We pray that you give the gospel success here and everywhere it's preached this day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you make a routine phone call to your doctor or to the hospital. For instance, if you need a prescription refilled or if you just need to make an appointment. Or in the same way, if you were to make a call, like I recently did, to the uh, police department, but not for a a problem or or a crisis of some kind, but just to report an incident that I observed. If you dial the regular administrative number at the police department or at the hospital or any place like that, you'll probably get an automated answering system to begin with, and it will probably start out by saying something like, and I know you've heard this, most of you, many times, if this is an emergency, please hang up and dial 911. Okay, and then if it's not an emergency, you stay on the line and you get connected to whoever you need to talk to. If this is an emergency, hang up and dial 911. In an emergency situation, in other words, whether it's medical or, or uh, some kind of uh, physical danger you're in need, and you're in need, um, you, you dial 911. That's who you call. And I couldn't help thinking of that as I came back to and considered afresh this passage from Joel, because Joel speaks of a coming emergency, and he tells you who to call. Our text begins uh, using the word afterward, and it shall come to pass afterward. 
And what it means by that is after the events that had been prophesied in the previous verses, because God had begun through his prophet Joel to proclaim good news, glad tidings to the people. And the glad tidings that he proclaimed earlier in this chapter had a lot to do with um, uh, physical blessings because the land had been ravaged by locusts. And God says he's going to restore to them the years that the locusts have eaten. And he promises uh, relief from the famine. He proclaims a coming season of plenty. And after those things come what we read about in our text this evening. The question then is, well, how long after? Well, we find out that it's actually something like 500 years after because Peter quotes this passage on the day of Pentecost. We got a lot of fuel from Peter in terms of interpreting this text, which is is a a blessing. But Peter quotes Joel into Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and where um, Joel says... uh, it shall come to pass afterward, Peter, uh, un- with, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says, in the last days. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> so, from Joel's perspective, this prophecy, the one we're considering tonight, is for many years to come, sometime many years future. But the the basic message of this text is that everyone who calls upon the Lord will be delivered from the wrath to come by the power of God's Spirit. That's the emergency that's looming on the horizon, the wrath to come. And everyone who calls upon the Lord will be delivered from that wrath, and they'll be delivered by the mighty power of God's Spirit. So we're going to consider the outpouring of the Spirit, and then we're going to consider these signs and wonders that are described in the text for us, and then finally we're going to contemplate what exactly it means to call on the name of the Lord. So first of all, the text speaks of the outpouring of the Spirit, and this is something that God himself is going to do. This is the work of God. He says, I will pour out my Spirit. Sorry. And he's going to do it very generously, too. He's not going to just parcel his spirit out in meager portions to people. He's going to pour out his spirit, he says. And upon whom is he going to pour it? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, the text says. What does all flesh mean? Well, that phrase occurs many times in Scripture, and with the help, again, of the New Testament, we find that when the Spirit says, or when God the Spirit says through Joel he's going to pour out his Spirit on all flesh, it means this outpouring won't be restricted to certain classes of people. If you look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, the the outcome of this pouring out of his spirit upon all flesh is this leveling of all classes of people. And so Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
this expression, all flesh, when we see it uh, in the Old Testament, it's, a, it's shorthand for the entire human race. Everyone. Sometimes all flesh actually even includes in that category the, the animal life as well. So there are portions of Genesis 6, for instance, when God says he's going to destroy all flesh from the face of the ground, he's not just talking about people, he's talking about all the living creatures. And of course, that's why Noah had to preserve pairs of them in the ark. All flesh uh, can mean all life of any kind on the earth, but when we find it, for instance, in Genesis 6.12, we can see that it refers to the human race in total. Because Genesis 6.12 says, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Of course, that can't apply to animals. So we know he's speaking about men and women, the human race, the sons, the fallen and sinful sons and daughters of Adam. See the similar uh, usage of that phrase in Isaiah 66, verse 16. And these are just two examples. There are numerous others. But in Isaiah chapter 66, <clears throat> that's the last chapter of Isaiah, in verse 16, God says, For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. And what you find is that... Frequently, when God speaks of doing something to all flesh, he's not only talking about the entire human race, the whole population of the earth, but he's also almost always speaking in the context of judgment, of some kind of catastrophic judgment that's coming. But here in Joel, he's not talking about judgment. He's talking about a tremendous blessing. He's saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. And what's going to be the result of this pouring out of his spirit? Well, once the spirit is poured out on people, they're going to prophesy. <clears throat> they're going to dream dreams. They're going to receive visions. And so when you take these categories that are listed, sons and daughters, old men, young men, male and female servants, uh, Kyle and Delich, the distinguished uh, Hebrew scholars noted that the meaning of this rhetorical individualizing is simply that their sons, daughters, old persons, and youths would receive the Spirit of God with all his gifts. So there's this sort of inclusive nature of the pouring out of the Spirit upon all categories of people, and these blessings would come. Prophesying, dreams, visions. And prophecy... And dreams and visions are all modes of revelation. So what it means when God says they're going to prophesy and they're going to dream dreams and they're going to see visions, it means that God is going to make himself known to them through these supernatural means. <clears throat> Why would he do that? It's so that man can be in relationship with God. God reveals himself through prophecy, through these visions, through these dreams, he's going to proclaim to men and women, even male and female servants, who he is, what kind of God he is, how he wants his people to live. 
See this, uh, this was the, God created us to have relationship with him. He created us to glorify him and to enjoy him, to enjoy relationship with him the way our first parents did in the garden before the fall. God would come and walk with them in the cool of the day, it says. So that relationship was there originally, but that relationship was broken by man's sin. And God's restoring it through the outpouring of his spirit. So the the presence and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a gift offered by God to whosoever will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. Jesus Christ is the one who gives the Spirit without measure. In other words, he gives the Spirit without limit. He pours him out. So that's the outpouring of the Spirit. Well, in verses 30 and 31, we have some things that are somewhat difficult to to wrap our brains around, perhaps. Uh, The passage foretells wonders, signs. Let's read it again together. Verse 30 says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be darkened, shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So what do we make of this? Well, you've got blood and fire and columns of smoke. Those are all phenomena that can be associated with warfare, with armed conflict. And then when, when it speaks of the sun being turned to darkness and the moon to blood, that's that's prophetical shorthand for signs in the heavenly realms. And it's worth noting that um, no matter how literally you interpret that phrase, that I don't know of any scholar that literally believes the moon will be turned to actual blood. So we take that to mean that just as the sun is going to be darkened, the moon would also be darkened. <clears throat> But uh, remember that prophetic language, and that's what this is, and apocalyptic language especially, which this also is, is always heavily symbolic. We must keep that in mind when we try to make heads or tails of, of what we read in the prophets or in apocalyptic literature. And as I said earlier, uh, God in his word has given us, through the New Testament, a very important key in trying to figure out what Joel was talking about here. And that key to understanding Joel chapter 2 is Acts chapter 2. And so when you turn there, you see Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost... When the Spirit had been poured out and the, the 120 disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ began to speak in other languages, and then they went to the temple, they went outside, and everyone was drawn to the loud noise of the mighty rushing wind, and then they heard these people, these all Galileans, and yet some of them were speaking languages of all the different people from all the different nations that were present. And it blew their mind. And some skeptics said, they're drunk. And Peter corrects them and says, no, these men are not drunk as you suppose. Because it's only the ninth hour of the day, or third hour of the day, 9 a.m., in other words. Uh, He says, but, let let me explain to you what's happening. He says, this is what was uttered through Joel by the Holy Spirit. 
And what I think is very interesting, I don't know if you happened to turn to Acts chapter 2, but Peter quotes the passage about God pouring out his spirit, but he doesn't stop there. He includes verses 30 and 31. If Peter wanted to kind of sidestep the the weird apocalyptic language there, and if he didn't think that somehow that was associated with the events of that day, he could have just left it out. But he didn't. He included it. And so, I think it's very possible, in fact probable, that there there is an additional and more literal fulfillment of this passage in Joel that is yet future, awaiting the last day. So there might be a much more cataclysmic expression of this in the end, in the very end. In other words, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But the day of Pentecost, according to the Holy Spirit, speaking through Peter, the day of Pentecost was a fulfillment of this passage in Joel chapter 2. Well, then we come to this idea of calling on the name of the Lord. Let's look again at verse 32 in our text. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So to call on the name of the Lord, that's an that's not necessarily a, an idiom that we routinely use as Christians in this present day, but it was a very commonly used idiom in the Old Testament. And to call on the name of the Lord simply means to pray to God, to cry out to Him, to trust in Him for help. That's what it is to call upon the name of the Lord. And I think there are two things that hold verse 32 together as a unit. First, it's the, the, the idea of salvation, and secondly, the, the notion of call. Because in this one verse, you see God saying, All who, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then it speaks of those who will escape. So you've got the idea of deliverance, escape from wrath. So there's the salvation theme in verse 32. Then you've also got the theme of call because it speaks in the beginning of the verse of those who will call on the name of the Lord. But at the end of the verse, it speaks of those whom the Lord calls. So let's consider both of those. First of all, you've got this this concept of salvation. We saw it in verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And then when we go to the book of Acts, again in chapter 2, let's turn there together this time. Acts chapter 2, and look with me at uh, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Joel proclaimed it 500 years before Peter, and then Peter proclaims it on the day of Pentecost, and he's preaching the gospel to these people from all the nations under heaven who had gathered in Jerusalem there. Now, the, 
R.C. Sproul has a, one of his many books, uh, was a book called uh, Saved from What? Because we use the, the term saved or salvation a lot. People throw out that word and we speak it uh, in religious um, contexts, but what does it mean? What does it mean to be saved? And that's part of the point that Sproul was seeking to open up in, his, in this book, Saved from What? <clears throat> But uh, in the Old Testament, when, and, and you see it many, many times, you see it frequently in the Psalms, and you see it in many other places uh, throughout Old Testament scripture, when it speaks of salvation or of being saved, it usually is a reference to escaping from some calamity or other, some dire situation from which someone, often the Lord himself, extracts a person. Sometimes death itself, to be saved from death, from physical death, or to be rescued from a dangerous or precarious situation. <clears throat> In verse 32 of our text, the context of being saved is that great and awesome day of the Lord. Because, again, the Old Testament idea of being saved is to be saved from some calamity, but the ultimate calamity, the granddaddy of all calamities, is that day of judgment that's coming. And that's the context in which Joel is prophesying. And he says that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved even in that great day. And again, speaking of call, the, the idea of call appears twice in verse 32. Um, the first one has to do with a, a human act, an act of submission to God, an act of faith, of trust in him. That's what it is, to call upon the name of the Lord. But it also speaks of a sovereign work of God. If you see that at the very, in the closing words of this verse and of this chapter, uh, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. You've got calls going two different directions. People calling on the name of the Lord and then the Lord calling. People. Well, how do these two fit together? Because one seems to speak of man's volition and a reaching out to God, reaching up to God, but the second one speaks more of God's sovereignty. And I think they fit together in the sense of what Jesus said in John 6:37. Here you have both calls, man's call to God and God's calling upon man, encapsulated in one verse, John 6, verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So you've got people, men and women, children, coming to the Lord Jesus, but they're coming because God has given them to the Lord Jesus. That's how the two ideas fit together. Now, it's difficult sometimes for us to reconcile them, but it need not be. And frankly, it's not, it's not uh, incumbent upon us to reconcile them. It's simply incumbent upon us to believe them. Man's volition and the free call of the gospel. Romans 10, verse 12 
There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, it says. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on, on who? On all who call on him. Call on the Lord. But then you've got God's sovereign decree. You know that wonderful chapter in John's Gospel that we, we call it Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's the night in which he was betrayed. And before he goes to face his, his betrayer and be arrested and suffer, he prayed. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for you. He prayed for me. And as he opens that prayer up, as he begins, he speaks to his heavenly Father and he says, you have given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Did you see the, the use of the expression all flesh there? You have given him authority over all flesh. Why does he have authority to pour out his spirit on all flesh? Because God's given him authority over all flesh to give them eternal life, those who call on him. So those whom the Father has given to the Son will come to him. They will call upon the name of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be delivered from the wrath to come by the power of God's Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and I've just got two closing applications to make before we come to the table. One application, something to know, and then the other, something to do. So first of all, something to know. Remember, prophecy, dreams, visions, all those things we read about in verse 28, those are all revelatory acts of God. They're modes by which he made himself known. Remember when Pastor Mark first began to preach through Hebrews, in those opening lines of Hebrews, God who in many ways spoke to, the, spoke to his people, and, and he's talking about these kinds of things, when he referred to many ways, God, God spoke in former times, prophecy, dreams, visions, they're all revelatory acts of God, and what they teach us is that God can be known. He reveals himself to mankind through his word. He tells us who he is. That's what his word does. His word tells us who God is. And so therefore, you can't simply decide what to think or believe about God. You have to go to his word to know what to think about God and what to believe about him and who he is. Suppose someone introduced themselves to you. You introduce yourself, you shake their hand, and they say, hi, well, my, my name's Frank. Would you say, well, you know, yeah, I, I prefer to think of you as Howard. And then, you know, Frank kind of gets a little bit befuddled, but he goes on to introduce himself a little bit more, and he says, yeah, I, um, I work in insurance. I'm an insurance agent. Would you say to him, Nah, I don't think so. I, I see you as a restaurant manager. But people do that exact thing to God all the time, don't they? I like to think of God as... Look, my God is 
X, Y, and Z. How dare we? God's word tells you who he is and what he's like. We must believe his word and not make up a false God of our own imaginations. That's what people are doing every time they say, I think of God as. So know who he is and that he reveals himself. He reveals himself truly. He's infinite, right? We can comprehensively know God, can we? Because he's infinite and our brains are not infinite. But we can know him truly. And the way we know him truly is to read of how he reveals himself in his word. That's the no. Second application, something to do. Very simple. Call on the name of the Lord. Call on him. You must receive and rest upon the Lord Jesus Christ alone as he is revealed and offered in the Bible. That means go to the Lord in prayer, confess to him that you are a hopeless and justly condemned sinner, and ask him to have mercy upon you in the name of his Son. Because the day of judgment is coming. The day of judgment is the ultimate calamity. It's the ultimate emergency. And if you were having a heart attack, you wouldn't call the appointment line, would you? If an armed intruder were breaking into your home, you wouldn't call the police information desk, would you? In an emergency, you call 911. And to escape the wrath of God that is coming. Your only hope is to call on the Lord. And when that judgment day comes, it'll be too late to do that, you see. That's why you must call upon him now. Seek the Lord, as as Isaiah said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Amen? Well, all of us here tonight who have called upon Christ and who have found refuge in him, remember him together when we come to this table and this ordinance that he has appointed that he instituted for his people. So as we come, let's 